Welcome to Enterprise Radio, the signature show of the Enterprise Podcast Network, featuring some of the most prominent business professionals in the world today. And now your host, Eric Dye. This is Eric Dye, and once again, welcome to Enterprise Radio, a part of EPN, the Enterprise Podcast Network. Joining us today on the program, we have Dr. Drew Jones, a PhD. He's also an anthropologist, former business school professor, and practicing management consultant. He is a founding partner of Experient, a workplace culture and strategy consultancy. Over the past 20 years, he has worked on culture, leadership, and workplace design projects with clients throughout the U.S., Europe, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. He has published three previous books on design, thinking, and innovation, co-working, and activity-based working, and his new book is Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. And Dr. Jones, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Eric. Well, you're certainly more than welcome. Looking forward to hearing from you today. And so let's just get right into things here, if you would. How does your approach to managing corporate culture different from, say, the many other approaches out there? Yeah, well, that's a great place to start. I mean, you know, on the one hand, CEOs, HR consultants, managers in general tend to agree that culture is indeed important. Uh, the, the old Drucker adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast. People just take that at face value, um, and I agree with that. But but when you look at the, and this is where my approach really differs, when you look at the data around that over the last 50, 60 years, it, it, business is really generally pretty bad at managing culture. So a few stats to get started. 30% employee engagement levels for over 60 years. 70% of corporate change programs fail. 80 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions don't achieve their stated objectives, often because of what's considered poor culture fit. And then uh, another uh, bit of data from Gartner that's really interesting is big companies spend on average $2,200 per employee per, per year on culture. Yet, less than a third of those efforts uh, report a positive ROI. And then another damning piece of data is employee, around 70% of employees in that study say they don't believe in the cultural aspirations <clears throat> of, their, of leadership. So what's going on here? On the one hand, it's important. On the other hand, uh, managing people or managing culture tends to be terribly difficult. So it's what I call the culture dilemma. And so what I've done here is I've, I've really gone back to my anthropology roots and looked at the evolutionary science regarding, you know, what culture is in an evolutionary sense. And it, it turns out that the approach to culture, what I call the <clears throat> standard corporate culture change model, um, really, in a way, I'd say fundamentally runs against human cultural nature, right? because at, at heart, culture is the human capacity to observe, learn, share uh, information, most focusing really on learning and adaptation. Uh, and it's what Harvard evolutionary anthropologist Joseph Heinrich calls the human collective brain. And it's really concerned primarily with innovation and collective activity. But unfortunately, in many organizations, I'd say most organizations, people are managed individually and the way we're incented, the way we're hired, the way we do teamwork, the way we conduct performance evaluations, 
all of these granular elements of HR, uh, many companies really run uh, manage against the collective nature of human culture. So what I try to do in the book is say, okay, uh, where are some companies out there that do it markedly differently than than mainstream companies? But um, so these companies essentially. Treat change, quote unquote changing culture differently than the mainstream approach. The mainstream approach is that you administer a survey. The survey informs the company what culture type it has. Then the organization sets out to achieve the kind of co corporate culture that they want. So it's the classic consultancy gap closing program, where they announce to the to the company uh, these are the stated values, beliefs, and behaviors we want you to embrace. And then over a period of time, we're going to all of a sudden become this different culture. But that doesn't that doesn't work. What what works is an approach where management effectively creates conditions where culture can develop organically. And and you don't need a lot of culture talk in the organizations that I profile because they just do it in practice. It's not a bunch of lofty words. It is tangible things that employees do on on a on a day-to-day -day basis. And these companies really they manage their people in ways that are contrary to what we teach in business school. Uh, we tend to teach, you know, command and control, predictive modeling, uh, importance of management, centralized decision making and all of that. But in these companies whether it's W.L. Gore, uh, <clears throat> Intuit, Hair Electronics, Morningstar Tomatoes, or, or Microsoft, which we can talk about, they create conditions where employees can uh, experiment with what they're doing, not necessarily product uh, and service experimentation and innovation, but processes, day-to-day -day activities. And they unlock the capability of groups to innovate together. And and it, I profile 15 companies in the book that that embody this, and that's really the model. So it's it's you know excuse excuse the idea of a survey driven approach, and it's more about what I call shifting from behavior change to design, designing conditions where uh, companies or employees can get on with building culture organically. And what we find in these companies are two things: one is super high levels of engagement and low levels of turnover combined with high levels of innovation for customers. So it tends to be a virtuous spiral. And each of the companies discussed in the book uh, are at the top of their industry financially. So it's, I try to demonstrate that this alternative approach to culture can lead to extraordinary financial results. I certainly do appreciate the full coverage and your thorough response there. That is certainly Appreciated. Now, what do you mean when you say that Microsoft's financial turnaround under Satya Nadella began as a cultural turnaround? Talk to us about that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite examples from the book. You know, under Steve Ballmer, Microsoft was really a fear-based culture driven on sales, proprietary software, and a very closed, uh, competitive environment internally. And um, you look at the share price under uh, Balmer and it collapsed, I believe, 36% over his tenure. And 
a lot of the talent in software development industry decamped over the many years to Silicon Valley where companies were more open sourced, where people, uh, whether it's Google or Airbnb, a lot of these companies that attracted the tech talent uh, gravitated because they could work in more agile, iterative, innovative organizations. So when Nadella came in, he, he was inspired by a book by Carol Dweck, which has become quite popular now, called Mindset. And in the book, she outlined this contrast between two points of view of human talent and organizational potential. One is the fixed mindset, and one is the growth mindset. The fixed mindset is this notion that <clears throat> people are what they are, they can't change and develop, and intelligence and capabilities are more or less fixed. Whereas a growth mindset, which Nadella has been has cascaded across the organization, is the belief that everybody can get better and learn and that but they need the opportunities to experiment and learn. So what he's done is he's enabled uh, micro level experimentation and, and innovation. What he's, he's got these three things that he talks about is experiment and don't be afraid to fail, learn from it, and then share what you're learning. And so he's created an environment where not only is product and service innovation expanding, but it's become, again, a place where top talent wants to be because you can go there and you can actualize your full creative intellectual potential because his key is you don't punish people for making mistakes as long as we learn from it. So in that sense, he's the exact opposite kind of leader from, as Nadella, who created this environment where it was all about we're going to hit our sales marks. Nobody deviates from the norm. And there's great literature about how competitive Microsoft was internally and how difficult a place it was to work under Balmer. Whereas now, you know, I think just this week it surpassed maybe only momentarily, but it surpassed Apple as the most valuable company in the world by market cap. And so their bets in AI, they acquired GitHub, which is an open source software shop, which signaled that they're embracing that. <clears throat> and that's really where the title of the book, Open Culture Handbook, comes from. It's just inspired by open source software, open source uh, thinking, and how open source companies operate. So he's instilled that uh, commitment to experimentation and innovation at Microsoft. And it's just led to this completely different place to work. And that buoyancy of the employee experience and innovation is, you know, according to me and others, really what's driven its um, its mojo and and subsequently the love from Wall Street. Certainly some very interesting details shared on that. I really do appreciate that good stuff. Now, looking at the great resignation, what do you think companies need to do to stem the tide of quiet quitting and the great resignation. I'm sure you have some interesting and some very helpful feedback on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, and this is largely what we do at Experian, is, is design, you know, ways of working, including workplace design that addresses this. But I think it really starts with choice and autonomy. And this is what, you know, the companies profiled in the book all lead with is employee choice and flexibility. So in our world at Experian, the RTO, return to office mandates, and other top-down directives simply don't work. And 
there's a combination of factors there. One are the is the inertia of the industry where uh, companies have put foot footprints and they feel like they need to use them, so they're forcing people back. So that's those aren't lost costs, but. The, the Great Resignation, my wife refers to it more appropriately as the Great Domestication. And I think that was a pivotal moment in, in the history of work where we're not going back. So the companies that really get it right, like a sales force, they give you choice. They give you three options, uh, full-time at the office, mixed, hybrid, or full-time at home. So I think that that really is the the way to go uh, and then, of course, it, re it requires a uh, right-sizing of the footprint, the real estate, because before the pandemic, office utilization rates were at 40 to 50 percent, which is quite low. Most people don't know that. But now it's like 8 or 10 percent. So it makes no sense financially to try to force people back. But at the same time, I would say this. Uh, having a sense of place in a company is very important. So it, arguably, it makes the challenge of workplace design more significant than ever, more important than ever. But it needs to change and it needs to support what the company does, what people need to do when they're not working at the house. But I think that these mandates really uh, miss the point altogether and that it's a new era of and really what I call in an employee-driven work environment. It's no longer management driven and that that's tough for a lot of companies to swallow but i think over time we'll see that that becomes the norm really do appreciate that and even your wife's thoughts on that that is much appreciated great great stuff there today we're speaking with dr drew jones he is a phd founding partner of Experient, a workplace culture and strategy consultancy his new book is open culture handbook five questions to drive engagement and innovation and he's joined us here today on enterprise radio a part of vpn the Enterprise Podcast Network. Now, continuing on, why do you say that innovation is as much as an HR issue as it is a business growth issue? Get into that a little bit, if you would. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that really gets to the heart of the whole discussion for me. And that, and there's a great article by Doug Kirkpatrick, who used to be with uh, Morningstar Tomatoes um, in, in the magazine called Corporate Rebels. It's out this week. And, and it's he says basically the same thing. I wondered if he had read my book, but I think he's too smart to have needed it from me. But the idea is essentially that in this understanding of what culture is and what really human evolution is, it's really all about um, adaptation and creative problem solving. And the idea is that humans are wired to solve problems through trial and error learning, and that in situations and organizations where employers are able to act on that. It doesn't need to be product innovation or things that people outside of the company even know about, but it's being able to use the full measure of a person's intelligence and creativity to solve problems and to work to a certain extent independently and find new ways of doing things or potentially new products and services. And that, to me, in my studies over you know 25 plus years, is the largest source of employee engagement, the driver of employee engagement, is where your job on a daily basis allows you to do that. And there's some great research that shows that like 80% of uh, highly engaged employees say that their companies 
highly value innovation. So the data is there to show it and the companies that profile show it. So yes, the company benefits from the potential pipeline of new products and that's you know the business side, but it also is a way to activate and motivate employee energy, creativity, and, and ultimately engagement and retention because people on a day-to-day -day basis are able to uh, work, work on variable projects, different things, come up with independent solutions. You know, when people come into work and it's what Roger Martin calls, you know, algorithmic work, where it's you're just repetitively scaling an existing set of products or slashing costs, and that's your whole job. People flatline in terms of their energy level and their motivation. People want stimulation. They want you know, to be able to create their own value, and that, that that itself is an engagement mechanism. And um, I think it's hugely important. And the challenge for so many employees is their their CEO or their division head, whatever, loves to talk about how innovative they are and all of this, but on a day to day basis, that's far removed from their experience. They don't do any of that. They come in and they work in this linear, repetitive way. Uh, and and you know thus we have these thirty level thirty percent level of engagement across uh, much of the economy. So uh, that's really the it's not a formula, but that's the connection between innovation and, and engagement as as I see it. Also, Dr. Jones, why do you think employee engagement levels in American companies have remained so low for so long? I'm sure you have some good feedback on that as well. Yeah, well, you know. There's a great little book published in 1960 called The Human Side of Enterprise by Douglas McGregor. And at the time, he was a professor of management at MIT Sloan School. Um, and he, he outlined what he called the difference between two approaches to management. One, and this is similar to the fixed mindset, growth mindset distinction that Carol Dweck writes about. But you talk about theory X managers and theory Y managers. Theory Y, theory X managers start with the assumption that people don't like to work, that they can't be trusted, and they need to be heavily managed in order to stay on task. Theory Y managers are much more hands-off and they believe that work is as natural as play. It gives people inherent fulfillment. And that the best way to get the most out of them is to give them a long leash and manage them like adults and not children. And now, if you want to get into the anthropological dimensions of this difference between trust or lack of trust, theory X, theory Y, uh, McGregor goes so far as to suggest that it's an extension of, you know, our particular American interpretation of Christianity and that people in this generic sense are seen as fallen and wicked and untrustworthy and all of that. But in general, that top-down command and control type of management where people are held, held tightly to tasks and monitored closely has just been the norm, whatever the reasons sort of sociologically or behind the scenes. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sitting here advocating that necessarily that aspect of um, McGregor's point of view, but there is something ab about the lack of trust um, in people that conventional management 
has. And, and it's really problematic because um, as Paul Zak, who's a psycho psychologist who uh, teaches at the Claremont Graduate School, is an expert on trust. And trust really, if you go back to understanding of human evolution, a trust really is the foundation of, of how humans evolved because it was cooperation with people we weren't related to, you know, what we call non-kin that allowed large scale innovation, whether it's group hunting or the domestication of agriculture, the development of electricity. These weren't lone geniuses. These were groups of people that you ne weren't necessarily related to that you were working with and coordinating with to accomplish all these things that humans have accomplished. So trust is absolutely sits at the center of all of this, whether it's theory X, theory Y, or fixed mindset, growth mindset. And um, so I think really the takeaway from this as I've finished the book and I'm now talking about it is, is a deficit of trust. And companies that start with trust statistically tend to out, outperform those that, that, that don't. Uh, and I don't really know for sure why there's a lack of that, but that's kind of where the, that's kind of the fulcrum of it all, as I can see it. Dr. Jones, again, we thank you for taking a moment to be with us here today. A lot of great information and insight shared per your expertise. And again, you are the author of the new book, Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. Uh, I'm sure listeners would like to pick up the book. So where's the best place to pick up the book and also get more information on yourself and your firm experience? Yeah, so I can be found at drewjones.co, that is just .co, and experient with the t.work. And then the book is available at amazon.com, but also right off the homepage of my uh, website at drewjones.co. And so that's where I am, and on LinkedIn as well. Love to connect with anybody who's curious about sort of an evolutionary approach to looking at culture. And once again, Dr. Jones, we appreciate all you do. And again, thanks for joining us here today on EPN. Thanks so much, Eric. Great to talk. Take care. Hey, you too. Again, we've been speaking with Dr. Drew Jones, a PhD and founding partner of Experian, a workplace culture and strategy consultancy. And his new book is Open Culture Handbook, Five Questions to Drive Engagement and Innovation. And for further details, simply visit drewjones.com. CEO. And this is Eric Dye, and you've been listening to Enterprise Radio, part of EPN, the Enterprise Podcast Network. Tune into our live location as we are streaming live 24-7 around the world at epodcastnetwork.com forward slash live. You can also find our live stream on iTunes Radio and TuneIn Radio, as well as the TuneIn Radio app for your listening convenience. And as always, we thank you for your support and for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Enterprise Radio. To subscribe to more of our programming, visit epodcastnetwork.com. This is the ePodcast Network.